Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Please consider supporting Black Women United YEG for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. You can learn more about them at bwunited.ca. They are always looking for donations and volunteers. So please, again, support Black Women United YEG for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. Again, that website is bwunited.ca. Hi, I'm Jed Bodwin, and I live in Wichita, Kansas. I am a Patreon supporter for Creative Control. I discovered Creative Control some years ago, I think maybe while looking for interviews with Tommy Stinson of The Replacements, and uh, I stumbled across this conversation that Vish had with Tommy Stinson that was really insightful. Vish held his own. I think Tommy can be a little bit of a difficult interview at times, and it went really well, and it really uh, got into some areas that I wasn't expecting, and I thought, gosh, I have to listen to more of this guy and his podcast. Sometimes I'm not necessarily a fan of the music or musicians that uh, Vish will have on the show, but I always appreciate their creative process a little bit more. And uh, more times than not, though, it does lead me to uh, finding a new musical artist that I'm interested in or to think a little bit differently about maybe some artists whose work I've overlooked. So, Go ahead, and if you've been waiting at all to support Vish and Creative Control, now is probably the best time to do it. I know as a public radio employee here in Kansas, listener-supported broadcasting, whether it's podcasts or radio itself, really isn't a thing of the past. It's actually very much a thing of both the present and the future. So, yay Vish, yay Creative Control. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, Please visit patreon.com slash creative control today. Murray A. Lightburn is a prolific songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, singer, and producer based in Montreal, Quebec. Well known as the lead lyricist, vocalist, and co-founder of The Deers, a prominent Canadian band that formed in 1995 and continue to release new music and tour. Lightburn is also a solo artist who has released three albums since 2013. On March 31st, 2023, 
Danger Bird Records presents his deeply personal new record, Once Upon a Time in Montreal, which chronicles the deep love shared between Lightburn's mother and late father, who passed away during the pandemic, and whose relationship with his children was never as close as the one he fostered with his wife. Murray and I connected recently for a discussion about things like his Mer Majesty home studio and how the monarchy looms large for his mother, who is from Belize, his experience parenting during a pandemic, losing his father to Alzheimer's before losing him forever, tracing his dad's difficult upbringing in life and how that translated into a very distant relationship between them, how jazz and other music vaguely connected them, the deep love Murray feels for his own wife and children, how all of this emotion was translated into the sound of Once Upon a Time in Montreal and the songs therein, future plans, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash creative control, which is the primary source of revenue for all the work that goes into this podcast. Thanks again for supporting the show at patreon.com slash creative control. Plus in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planted Bean Coffee, respectively, in the wonderful town of Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in the equally wonderful town of Hamilton, Ontario. This is episode 758 of Creative Control, featuring the lovely and talented Murray A. Lightburn with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hey, Murray, how's it going? Not bad, not bad at all. That's great. Uh, where in the world are you today? I'm in my home studio in uh, Montreal in Park Extension. It's just uh, north of uh, what they call Mile X or Mile End, uh, Montreal. That's where I am. Did they change Mile End to Mile X? I didn't know about this. Well, no, there's Mile End. Then there's Mile yeah. X, then there's Park X. So oh. Mile X is like the middleman between uh, Mile End and Park X. Oh, okay. See, I didn't know that. I just didn't know that thing at all. I I miss Montreal. I haven't been there in a long time. I appreciated the tour you just gave me of your, your space there. It sounds and looks really lovely. You've got something of a home studio. Yeah, I mean it's it. I call it Mer Majesty. It's like a joke <laughs> because uh, uh, Steve from uh, Young Galaxy. We were talking about how Jermaine Jackson named one of his kids Jer Majesty, and <laughs> right. we, it just that just cracked us up so hard. So like he kind of came up with this Mer Majesty thing, and then I've kind of stretched it, you know to because uh, i do composer work and the name of my company is mer majesty's secret service oh, so i just it's just okay. it's just a gift that keeps on g- giving you know <laughs> the joke just keeps going <laughs> mer majesty sounds like it would be the like the you know the the queen of the mermaids do you feel like yeah. the queen do you feel like the queen of the mermaids at all well, just a little i bit? do have a lot of royal 
and Queen Elizabeth memorabilia around the studio as part of the theme, right? Oh, okay. So um, my mom loves the Queen very much, loved the Queen very much. I think a lot of women from that generation, they really admired her greatly, hmm. uh, especially from the old country, Commonwealth countries. You know, my, my mom was from what was known as British Honduras, uh, which became Belize when it became independent, I believe, in the 70s. And mm-hmm. so major digression here, but right off the bat. But <laughs> Oh, well, I think it's actually germane to the album, to be honest, talking about your parents, obviously, uh, but talking about your mother and Belize. Yeah, I don't think it's that much of a... I guess a, not, yeah. yeah. I mean, the album is is the story of my parents, you know? Yeah. And the bond that they had and the love that my father an adoration that my father had for my mom you know yeah for what it's worth i want to uh convey my condolences to you and your family on the loss of your father uh uh, this occurred in the last few years is that correct yeah in um it was like a couple years ago it was during the first wave of what was completely unknown to all of us right you know at right at the outset you know we didn't know what was happening, but it felt like a science fiction movie, you know, like it felt like a dystopian science fiction movie. It really did. Yeah. But I was really trying to be optimistic throughout, you know, like I could see people spiraling and I felt bad for them, you know, because for me, when I look at the history of the world, it's like, I I just kind of felt like this is kind of a walk in the park and this is going to pass and we're all going to get through this. But some people just like really spiraled and I felt bad for them that they didn't have the perspective that I felt. And I was always trying to in my own way when I could see people around me feeling, you know, lost at sea that I would try to project you know, positivity hmm. through my whatever, even through my socials and never really embraced spiraling, you know, and uh, and like worrying out loud, even though I privately worried, you know, I, a little bit. Yeah. But I also deep down felt that when it was really super unknown and strange to us, I just kept thinking about, you know, well, Imagine what people were feeling during the Blitz, you know, imagine what people were feeling during the fucking black plague, you know, imagine what people and they didn't have Internet or anything. They weren't able to go to the Costco and fill up their cart to the top and take it home and watch Netflix for eight hours. You know what I mean? Like they didn't have power. (laughs) Yeah, given the circumstances, we were all, um, sorry, not all of us, but uh, a lot of us were quite privileged uh, during this uh, strange time. So that's what gave you that, as others were spiraling, your perspective was just uh, almost a a historical one. Particularly with my kids, I really started to relate to, I mean, you can't compare the circumstances in the story of Life is Beautiful, but like that story of the way that dad was you know taking care of his kid i related to that and was embracing that idea for my kids i never wanted them to feel afraid or like i spent so much time with my younger son you know 
because there was no school most of the time. <laughs> so, but we had a, we had we really grew extremely close through that period, and I cherish that. That was like a wonderful byproduct of that period, particularly those first, you know, six months, nine months, whatever it was, and what really was interesting was that when this thing was like really starting to happen this pandemic thing and it was like really on our shores and people were freaking out and panic buying toilet paper etc you know mm-hmm. <laughs> the first thought i had was well he's not going to make it he meaning my dad mm-hmm. he's not going to survive this he's not going to survive this I knew right away, even though he was extremely strong, he was suffering from Alzheimer's and had, you know, a basically like DNR, you know, et cetera. He was already kind of gone, you know, my mother was going to see him every day while he was in the home uh, until they said, okay, you can't, Mm. you can't do that. And that was really hard for her, extremely hard for her, you know, because they were joined at the hip for 56 years, you know, joined at the hip, man, joined at the hip. What I was struck by in the um, biographical information about this record is that, uh, yeah, your, your parents had a very close bond. They were together for 56 years. But in the in the information I was sent, uh, you are quoted as saying you yourself did not have a particularly close relationship with your father. You can count the number of meaningful conversations you had uh, yeah. on, on one hand or something, is I believe what you said. Um, yeah. I, don't, I don't mean to pry, but can you elaborate upon no, that? No. You were the youngest well, of three, three kids, I believe. Yes. So uh, what, four, four boys. Four, four boys. boys. Sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> so, um, can you talk about that? What was the wh- wh- why? Why was there such distance between you and your father? Well, I I want to preface that with a little, just elaborating a little bit more about what was going on. You know, like so, I I was telling you the story about how when things were first starting to happen in Canada with the pandemic, you know, and I had that thought. And my my father was in a home with Alzheimer's. I hadn't seen him. I hadn't gone to see him. I never, ever went to the home to mm. visit him, mm. ever. I never saw him in that place. Never went. And my mother was always trying to get me to go. And then one day I just kind of told her, just let me know when it's time for him to go. Mm. And then I'll go. Mm. Just let me know when he's going and I'll go see him then. Until then, I'm not going to go. So don't try to manipulate me. Don't try to, you know, trick me or don't try to, you know what I mean? Because my mother will say, do anything to make her, make her, as mothers do sometimes. They can be pretty, mothers can be pretty Machiavellian (laughs) in their life. Yeah, I have a mom. I know what you're talking about exactly. Yeah, yeah, I've been there. Yeah. And so, and then this thing happened and then I couldn't go. Mm. But before all that, something that I don't think 
anybody knew. And one of the only times that I felt like maybe my father not confided in me, but communicated something to me that I'll never forget because there's not, like I said, there's not a lot of meaningful conversations, but the things that do have meaning, they stick to you. And I remember he was working in a nursing home when I was a kid as a cook, which is a whole other backstory of how he wound up working there. It's mm. uh, that, that I don't know how much time you got, but <laughs> <laughs> but he was working there as a cook. And I think from what I understand, it was a miserable job. He hated it. And I remember one time being in the car with him and him saying to me, boy, I never want to be in one of these places. Never, never want to be in one of these places. And I'll never forget that. So when he wound up in there, after all of that, I was like, I don't think he wants me to see him in this place. Mm. You know? Some some point and of pride and shame maybe even. He was a strong man, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, he was a f- fighter at one point, and we were terrified of him. <laughs> you know, I mean, as a kid, I was terrified of him. I was absolutely terrified of him. Hmm. I did not. I did not have a very like, you know, the relationship that I have with my son. Let's just say, which is like <laughs> the polar opposite. Like my my kid is such a softy, yeah. and I'm a real softy with him. Yeah, both my kids really, you know. Your father was a your father was a musician, yeah. and again, I, I'm trying to tread the line of asking questions based on information that yeah. you're giving and yeah. what I've read. I don't want to pry, but was he just not? No, a, was he? You, you were terrified of him. Was, I mean, I'm putting it out there. It's a story, you know. And I, I think, I think us discussing the story and anyone listening can relate. And I think it's important as an artist to create things and talk about things that are relatable, you know, yeah. like yeah. things that are not relatable is riding in a limousine and drinking the finest champagne and, you know, singing about that. Things that are relatable is like, yeah, my old man died in an old folks home alone during the pandemic. Yeah. That's something that I think hundreds of people experience. You know, I think yeah. hundreds of people experience not actually being at their parents funeral or grandparents funeral yeah you know etc i just want to because i think it is germane to this record and these beautiful songs you've written i just want to try to uh, get at this just a little bit so forgive me again if i'm prying but you say your your father and your mother were joined at the hip Mm -hmm. you also say you were terrified of your father and you didn't have that much of a connection with him so what I'm trying to – immediately my mind goes to, oh, well, he was a musician. He worked many different jobs. Maybe he just wasn't mm-hmm. around very much, and mm-hmm. that's why there was this distance. But I'm starting to get a clearer picture. Like It sounds like he was present but not present for you. Is that a way of putting it? In the strangest way, yes. It's very old school, you know? Mm-hmm. Like he was there a lot, but he wasn't – there (laughs) you know like like i do have some memories of a distant closeness (laughs) of like sitting on the steps of our house 
inside the house. I'm sitting on the steps. I remember this very vividly. And him teaching me the melody to someone to watch over me. And I would play it on the guitar and struggle to play it on the guitar. But him like whistling it and me finding the notes on the guitar and him telling me about that song, you know, who, you know, who performed that song and, you know, and round midnight teaching me that melody and like stuff like that. But he didn't, he didn't want that for us. I don't know what he wanted because he never expressed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was a man of very few words. You know, it's something my mom and I talk about a lot. You know, she has one version in her mind of, you know, who my dad was, which is fine because that's their story. And that's the story I chose to tell because yeah. for me to reconcile the whole thing and not have to spend, you know, hours in therapy about it was that I just wanted to relate to where he was coming from, you know, because to me, understanding I, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm obsessed with like problem solving to the point of like even since I was a, when I was a kid, I used to take apart things to try to fix them and like try to identify precisely what's failed in electronics in anything i'm always trying to identify what has failed and i really i got i become i become obsessed with it yeah and what i don't want to say the failure of the relationship with my dad you know in the wake of his death like searching for that because i didn't it was so final that i was never even when like so it's like the first time I realized that he was gone, like with Alzheimer's, that was very jarring. And uh, I realized in that moment that, okay, so we're never going to have that conversation. We're never going to connect. That's it. He doesn't even know who I am, <laughs> which was so weird to grapple with and we all grappled with it me and my brothers differently and you know I'm not going to get into you know because that's their thing but like we all dealt with it differently but I could tell that we were all dealing with that because we all had a similar type of you know distance with him do you think he was trying to communicate with you directly via music instead of words he's playing you Charlie Parker I believe there's some John Coltrane floating around your house. Oh, yeah. Do you yeah, think yeah, that yeah. that I mean, like, is that how he was trying to relate to you? I think there was there was definitely like something where he was trying. He was in his own way trying to influence us through that stuff. Yeah, that's the only way he could communicate. Let's just say, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. was through possibly through music and through sports, you know, stuff like that. Well, that's that's fascinating in itself because I we started this conversation um, talking about the pandemic, and it seems to me that as you were speaking, you were trying to apply a parental perspective, because a lot of us have become little parents of people. Like, hey, everyone, <laughs> here's the real information. Yeah. Uh, like, on the one hand, chill out, calm down. On the other, 
be informed. Yeah. Like it's the, a lot of us are, yeah. are in this mode of like, look both ways before you cross the street these days. Like that's all yeah. we're really telling everyone. And other people are well, like, no, I, I don't I, care what you say, dad, mom, I'm just going to do whatever. And you apply yeah. this sort of parental perspective to that, this collective calamity. But I also think this is swimming around. You're relating how this situation has made you feel as a parent. And then you lost one of your oars and you've had to, I'm, I'm sure just go reflecting upon your father and your mother has given you some perspective on yourself as a parent too. Is that all fair? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, what was interesting was this is the thing. So when I was starting to like, when, when he, when he was gone, my mother dumped a lot of stuff on me, you know, all the preparations and like, I'm the youngest, you know, but for whatever reason, she leaned heavily on me. I'm sure she leaned on the other guys for different reasons. But for whatever reason, I became like the reliable one, you know. So I dealt with the funeral home. I dealt with all the details, you know. Uh, I dealt with, you know, the estate stuff, you know, went to the bank with her, you know, just all this stuff. You know, that was dealt with the government, you know, the death certificate. It's, it's 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 pretty wild, man. It was a wild ride because I was dealing with that immediately. Like I didn't even have a moment to take any of it in. I was I me, immediately went into care mode. Parenting your parents, you know, parenting your parents is another yeah. part of life that some of us are. Uh, because yeah. I could just feel the heaviness that my mom was going through it was so hard for her and i just went into taking care of my mother but in that you know we developed a closeness and we've developed a closeness in the wake of my a, a new closeness i was close to my mom when i was a kid and then i think like in her defense of my dad i became you know maybe a bit resentful over the years and like, you know, a distance sort of developed, but she, you know, she really divulged a lot of stuff to me that I didn't know. And I started to see things differently, you know, and I started to really let go of my relationship with my dad and kind of really look at the thing about him that I related to, which was that he was really like crazy in love mm -hmm. with my mom. And I relate to that in such a way, in the way how I am crazy in love with my partner. Yeah. Like bananas. Like I don't think anyone will ever know. I don't even think she'll ever know, you know, like just something happened where I have let this relationship like that. I want to preserve that so much. I'll move heaven and earth. I'll do anything. It's really strange. And that's, when I, you know, when I look at like my father's actions and what led him to Montreal, 
and living in Montreal most of his adult life with this woman that he adored and how it informed everything and everything, even the way he treated us started to make sense to me. I understood it for the first time. Hmm. And so I was just like, that made me kind of see him in a totally different way. The way my mother described the things that he did for her. She told us one story about the time she had a gallbladder operation, right? And she came home and, you know, she was recovering from that and he brought her home from the hospital and all that. And then he said to her, he said, Are you okay? You, you, you have everything you need? And she was like, yeah, I'm okay, I'm okay. Because I'm just going to just gonna go out for a minute. I'll, I'll be right back. Yeah. So he, he goes out. Next thing you know, my mom says, I, and I hear... I hear him come in the door and I hear him like huffing and puffing and struggling. Keep in mind, this is like late seventies or something or whatever, early eighties. Yeah. And we know what furniture was like back in those days. Of course. Yeah. Her, her, hernia inducing furniture. Mm -hmm. So he's huffing and puffing, struggling, and then it stops. And then after a while he comes over, he's sweating, whatever. He goes, uh, I got I got something for you. So he walks her out to the living room. He got her like a recliner mm. for her to for her to relax in mm. while she was recovering. Like that like the way he did it and the thought that he put into it. My mother saw that and I saw that in the way she told me. Mm. And I absolutely related to that story. Yeah. It was absolutely pivotal in my view of him. I it, Everything that I felt melted away and morphed into something new. Yeah, I, you know? I hope this might be a way to segue into the emotional tension on this lovely album of yours, Once Upon a Time in Montreal, because... Now that you've contextualized this further, I can't help but assume you're, you, you came at these songs with this swirl of, wow, this guy had so much love in his heart, but I didn't, yeah. I didn't ever, I didn't feel like I was as much of a recipient of it as his partner, perhaps some of my siblings. I assume that's how you're coming to, like, that's what I'm hearing. Somewhat, somewhat, yeah. but I kind of don't, care about me in the situation i kind of it's more like what's the the fact that there that like that was there is fat is more fascinating to me like where it was all going it's not like he didn't he was completely void of it he just really invested it all he had that one chip and he bet it all on black you know what i mean like (laughs) you know kind of thing and i respect that i absolutely respect that respect man absolutely i really really do like i don't think you know i'm as much as i love my children and i love my partner i just don't think that there should be an obligation 
for you know like and I'm I don't I'm not saying that he you know I'm sure in in his heart somewhere he loved us and just didn't know how to express it I right. don't know whatever right. you know like it doesn't matter that doesn't even matter like I don't need it you know I I don't need it you know it's weird I just I realized that I didn't need it and I don't need it you know, ch- ch- children in a in a relationship. I don't know if you can relate to this, Murray, but I think um, and, yeah. and people come at this from all different angles. I think for most of us, children, uh, when you have children with your partner, uh, they represent uh, an extension of your love for one another, right? I mean, you're that's yeah. what you're doing. You're building a life together, and it is. It's yeah. not just symbolic; it's a real extension. But I think it's, it's a weird thing, though, isn't it? Isn't well, it really weird. <laughs> I was just going to say, and I, I love my children unequivocally, and I love my wife unequivocally. But there are days, certainly, where the pressure, financial pressure, uh, maybe mm. gets to you, and gets the better and of the, you, and yeah. the fact that yeah, you've you. It's every once in a while, it's like, oh my god, I'm responsible for all of these people. And, and, and the, it's not, it's, it's I don't, I absolutely, I, it's so terrifying. It is terrifying. <laughs> and I'm not, I don't mean to suggest it's burdensome, but every once in a while, you're like, holy shit. It is. I am, I'm yeah. on the hook here and we're all, we're all working on this yeah. together. But I feel for whatever reason, uh, and it, it's probably bullshit residual patriarchal, you know, it's just bullshit. It's just yeah. men being like, uh, that's the role that I came up with thinking that, you know, I, I have to steer this ship, even though I'll tell you, I'm not the captain of my house. So this is a shared uh, collective. Co- <laughs> we, we never no, are. It's a collective endeavor. It is a collective endeavor. I know I'm not alone yeah, in it, but yeah, there yeah. are days where I think um, particularly probably men of your father's generation would have that outlook. Like, yes, my I see my children. They are. I love them. But they they are they a daily. They are a daily <laughs> reminder of my responsibilities as a person. And, and I think for some yeah. people, if they're not careful, you, you grow to resent your obligation. You, you grow to resent it a little well, bit and you is, distance yourself I mean, from that's, it. That's that you're, you're definitely hitting on something because, you know, going, you know, the little backstory that I could, I'll try to be really fast about was that, you know, my, my old man was in a situation where his old man kind of just, kind of disappeared for a bit yeah. you know it's like and uh and he had to quit school he had to get a job and he supported his family his siblings got you know ed- an education and got good jobs but he didn't he had no education right. you know right. he had he got up to grade nine mm. that's it yeah. so can you imagine being that age and then you got a support the family and this is in the old country they weren't were, they weren't rich you know they were poor right so he's a, and then he's a little bit angry at himself too then probably not not probably at his circumstances. I, I mean definitely yeah. fru- definitely frustrated yeah. you know yeah. and like but he was a skilled musician right. you know so it's like and he loved culture he loved jazz i mean when he was in he was telling me a story about like when i realized that he was deep in the woods with alzheimer's you know, he was he was recounting a story to me, but as if I was a stranger, which was so interesting because he was referring to my mom as his wife. Right. And he went to Birdland with my wife and my brother and my wife, he says. Oh. And and we went to see John Coltrane. Wow. And, you know, it was like the best night of his life, yeah. you know. Yeah. And 
I think there was a a big part of him that he just wanted to be a part of that world, and he was he was a skilled musician. Right. So when you know, like even through when I was like after I had my first kid, Neptune, you know, we were going into making Gang of Losers, and I was like in a in a mood where I just wanted to forget about it all and just like hey dad why don't you come and blow on on this record because i thought i thought that it would mean something to him mm-hmm. to have that opportunity to be recorded and i'm so proud of the fact that he got to play on those records and that you know he got a little a little immortality there yeah. you know like yeah. it's on record he's got that credit he played he blew that horn on those records there's no other it's the most notable thing you know if you google his name you'll find that credit somewhere you know what i mean like otherwise yeah. you know like he would his whole time would have come and gone and nobody would have known that he was a you know a skilled musician right. but that you know you know what i mean like so i just felt good about being able to give him that despite anything yeah despite everything, you know, and I, you know, my mother tells me that he also really cherished that, you know, but he never expressed that to me, but still it doesn't matter. I mean, I don't care. It's, I, I just, I just feel good about the fact that despite everything I was able to, to give him that because of what he gave me, he gave me everything. This studio that I'm in, He gave it to me. Well, Murray, you sound like you were and are a very good son. So I want to say that right <laughs> off the top. I just want to say that, first of all. Uh, no, I appreciate this. And I appreciate that you wanted to delve into this parental relationship with your within your expression. So I, I do want to get into how you approached taking all of this information, all of this emotional but I don't want to call it baggage, but just you, you literally had a lot to sort of delve into here. How did your mind go from, I got to take all this stuff and translate it into making music the right. way I do? Because I will tell you, uh, and I'm sure you can probably relate to this, uh, when you get into punk and post-punk and you have any kind mm. of parental strife um, mm. or whatever, <laughs> when you're trying to rebel or express feelings, yeah. For me, anyway, those realms were really important. I could talk about things, not about my family per se, but I could just talk about things in a way that made sense. I could express anger or pain in ways that made sense. Interestingly, mm-hmm. I would say, as my wife and I have been listening to your record a lot lately, it's been interesting. This is a very, my wife keeps commenting on the beautiful tone of your voice and, mm-hmm. and the arrangements here are really in the sort of jazz realm. Mm-hmm. And, and it's an interesting way. I get it. Like, I don't think this is a pure expression of, of that pain, except for the, it's an expression of loss, but you're also celebrating a relationship. So for me, it does make sense tonally. Can you take us back to how you got here? How did you get to this sound? And, and I, right. I believe you worked with Howard Billerman, my friend Howard. So yes. that's, I want to know about more about that. Can you talk a little bit, yeah. t- talk a little bit about how you aesthetically came up with this as a way of translating your feelings and your thoughts into music? Well, first I want to say Howard and I have been friends for like going on 30 years. Yeah. And he was he was really great to me in that period, you know. 
and because I was really, you know, I had a few friends that really helped me sort of get my bearings, you know. Uh, Torque was one of them. He was beautiful, you know. This is, for those listening, this is Torquil Campbell from Stars. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, everybody was so beautiful, you know. But, of course, I was, you know, trying to be strong. But I would just come into the studio. I didn't want my kids to see it. Mm. I didn't want my wife to see it. But I would just come in the studio and I would just start bawling, you know. Oh. And that was the first thing that I did. But, like, when I started to... You know, when I started to write, it was, I think one of the first songs I wrote was No New Deaths Today, Mm. which was like, I was looking at the news and, you know, that was like a a headline. (laughs) No New Deaths Today. Pretty standard uh, pandemic kind of era headline, I would think. Yeah. And I was just like, I just thought, how strange is this headline? You know, it's just like, what do you mean by that? No new deaths today. But all I could think was this, like how at one point my dad was a statistic in that, you know, and now today it's like a new day and the sun was literally shining that day. And so I started to write about that in my voice and I was texting with Howard and I was just like, you know, kind of telling him about this process. And he was just like, you know, maybe it's just one song to start with one song, you know. But as it developed, then I started to write Dumpster Gold, you know, again, just trying to just get my bearings and reconcile and introduce the situation. Yeah. And then I wrote. The only one I want to hear, which is written and sung in the voice of my father. Right. Because there's a shift the way the album unfolds. And it's somewhat chronological in the way that it's like I am a sort of narrator and I sing the first three songs in the first person somewhat in my voice. But it's kind of also like a bit of a conversation. I'm introducing the person who's going to take the mic. And when we get to the only one I want to hear is when he takes over the mic for the rest of the album. The rest of the album is in his voice because I felt that I wanted to shift from like, it's almost like the album is a conversation Mm -hmm. where it's like, you know, Here's my side of the story, Dad. I was going to go see you. I'm sorry I didn't go. Here are the things that I'm left with. I just wish that we could have talked about these things. Yeah. Dumpster gold. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, you know, I recognize, Dad, that you were alone when you went. That nobody was there. You know, in the kingdom of heaven. You know, that story. Yeah. And then it's like... There's a shift in the story. There's like, you know, he takes over the mic on the only one I want to hear. And he says, well, let me tell you my story. And so he sings this beautiful song about the only one he wants to be with. 
you know? As you're conjuring your father's voice in a song like that one. I really appreciate this distinction, by the way, between the narrative voice here, because for anyone listening and doesn't look at the bio, uh, maybe doesn't know the context, you're just going to hear this first person narrative and assume probably, yeah. oh, this is Murray. This yeah, is all Murray, is, right? That, oh, yeah, exactly. But, exactly. I think, uh, I think that that's something that people you know, automatically think when somebody's singing in the first person, they're singing about themselves when, you know, that's not always the case as a writer, you know. No, absolutely. You're you're adopting narrative voices, but I can't help but also add to this that based on what you were saying earlier about your devotion to your your own wife, do you see a parallel between the emotions that you're absolutely. Ex- expressing? Absolutely. And the only one I want to hear, like that could be about your your wife, probably. Absolutely. Right. And, and that's what I'm talking about, the yeah. relatability, you know, of, of like how I was able to reconcile this man was yeah. through that. So I started to write these love songs, Yeah. you know? Yeah. And so you have the only one I want to hear. Uh, you have, you know, Once Upon a Time in Montreal, the title track. You have Girl, You Gotta Let Me Go specifically recognizing when I, I played the album for my mom and she was like, you know, you, that song really spoke to me. And I said, of course it did because it's what you told me, Yes, you know, you yes. told all she kept talking about was like, she just, I just remember her just talking about those seven weeks yeah. that she could not go see him. And so I talk about the seven weeks we won't get back. No, you it's, know? it's very powerful. It's very powerful. And I feel like you framed it or packaged it in a musical way that you thought your father would appreciate as a fan of of jazz and and that kind of sound is that fair well that well yes i think going in that direction like kind of leaning into it and getting guys who have that sensibility to play on it was important because you could render it in a variety of ways i could have made an elect more electronic sound i could have you know embraced my indie roots a little harder. I could have made a rock and roll record, you know, but it's just like if I was going to sing in my father's voice and communicate on his turf, you know, I better bring in. Yeah. You know, no, it's some, some, some solid musicians. <laughs> you know, it's some of it actually reminds me of like Lou Reed or something, just like the way Lou, yeah. Lou would process emotion and and sing very directly because i think it's Mm. that's the other thing my wife commented on too like the 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 poetry if you will the lyrics is quite direct and i think you're really getting at the heart of the matter and 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 like i mean it's artful but there's just a sense of like your voice is very high in the mix as well like it just feels very er, immediate Mm. that's where i'm kind of coming from does that make sense yeah i mean i think i'm a big fan of like articulate communication yeah you know there was a time when you know i would even do interviews and i'd have trouble really getting to the bottom of what i am trying to say and i've really worked hard to articulate better but not just in interviews but just in my daily life you know Mm -hmm. and i seek I seek that clarity, yeah. you know, in my communications with other people. Just like, to be clear, you mean such and such. Yeah. Just so that we're clear, you know, like it's, I'd really, I, I really search for that. I really need that. And I think it's important to be a bit more direct when, it, especially when it comes to affairs of the heart yeah. and emotional things, to be truthful, to be honest. I think even when it hurts 
uh, you come out of the other side of it, you know, stronger. Yeah. You know, I think. I mean, that's just my opinion. Maybe I'm totally wrong, but I just don't think that, you know, uh, sweeping things under the rug mm-hmm. is going to be helpful, yeah. you know? And so I think also my job as an artist and writer and performer, you know, composer, you know, recording artist, et cetera, whatever you want to call it. I think if I'm putting something out into the world, it's important for me to put it in a way that is very clear and direct so that even though it's super personal, it's almost hyper personal yeah. that people can adopt it for their own lives right and and because not everyone is able to put it into words so it's like i've spent my life's work figuring out the right combination of words as a writer that's like a big focus it's so funny because i'm working on a job right now and i i was emailing with them and it's it's just funny that we're talking about this because (laughs) yesterday i (laughs) That, that I was like, how do you feel about writing lyrics for this? Is that something you want to do? And I'm like, <laughs> it's it's like, I actually hate writing lyrics. Like, it's such a monumental task. There's so much pressure to get it right. Yeah, sure. You know, sometimes, yeah. especially when you're in, when it's on demand. Right. But like in this case, the story became so clear to me. And like, for example, a song like Oh, But My Heart Has Never Been Dark was born from a conversation I was having with Ariel. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is uh, this is Ariel Engel. Yes. I'm uh, sorry. Who, I, who I, I've, I, also I, been, I, I've also <laughs> been friends with for like the better part of two decades. <laughs> yeah. I just like to give people a sense of uh, Ariel's a musician, plays in broken social scene yeah. and all, all hands make light. And yeah. Uh, a bunch of things, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Aurora. I, I don't know if Aurora is still happening, but yeah, all sorts of bands. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so we were just talking, and and I just I remember saying, you know, we we're just talking about a bunch of you know really, you know, related to uh, parents passing and stuff like that, and it was a really good conversation. I just remember just talking about myself, saying, you know that like despite everything you know my heart it is has never been dark you know that's something that i recognized yeah you know and that i look for in other people you know like that you know people do messed up stuff to each other but like their their heart's not in it you know like people slip up people do things that are forgivable but like looking into their heart is more important, I think. And I think for me, you know, in how I'm focused is like, is making sure my heart is not in a dark place. You know, I've I've spent a a lifetime trying to do that. You know, I've been a jerk. I've said dumb things. I've said terrible things to people and maybe done terrible things in my life. But like, I think a lot of people look back on their lives and have regrets about actions that they took mm-hmm. and said and whatever. And I, I fully recognize and want to be accountable, and, but also mostly want to preserve my heart in a place 
that is not in darkness. So when I wrote that song, singing in my father's voice, I just remember, you know, I'm talking about the anger that I felt in him, you know, and I remember him telling me about, you know, being an immigrant, you know, in the 60s in Quebec, how incredibly difficult that was for him. Yeah. You know, literally being called a nigger every day at work, you Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. and so he just had such a resentment towards what he called the Frenchmen, you know? And, uh, you know, I mean, this is the time that was the time, you know? And, Mm -hmm. but what the song is about is how I witnessed his heart softening over the years and how he softened so much. Mm. He softened so much. I saw a hard man, over years and years, soften. That was miraculous, man. Yeah. That was incredible. Yeah. You know? Yeah. He didn't stay hard. His heart didn't stay in a dark place. Yeah. His heart found light, and he embraced that light, and he softened. It's it's really something else. He sounds like he was a quite a magical character and magical figure. And uh, I want to say that I appreciate your own heart and honesty and your sensitivity towards this. I mean, you seem very grounded for someone who has probably grappled with this for their whole life, life rather. So I just want to once again, thank you for uh, making this record and for sharing these thoughts and feelings with us here and, and all those sorts of things. Um, I wonder what too much. No, well, <laughs> no, no, of course not. No, I don't think so. I think, uh, it's good to have these honest. Hey man, if anyone listens, if anyone <laughs> listens to this and is, it's helping them. That's, that's why we do that. Absolutely. Why are, wh- otherwise, why else are we sitting here with mics in front no, of us? No, absolutely. That, you know, I, like, <laughs> I, I do think the, I have heard firsthand that these kind of, these kinds We're of conversations to, to, help. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So where I was going there was, uh, kind of housekeeping stuff at the end here. Um, mm-hmm. Murray, what's sort of coming up next for you? Uh, I know you've been uh, you've got some tour dates and whatnot. So yeah, can you talk a little yeah. bit about what's coming up next, and also where people can go uh, on their on the internet, I suppose, or record stores yeah. and these sorts of things to learn more about you and this yeah. uh, new album. Well, I mean, the internet is a good place to start. <laughs> yeah. Just Google my name, you'll find all kinds of crap. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, putting together a few shows, which is a challenge. I don't have an agent in Canada at all. I don't have an agent in North America. I just have a a UK, European agent. Mm. So it's weird. My relationship with North America and the music business is weird. So you're not going to hear a lot about me, you know, which is fine. I don't, not to get too deep into it, but I just kind of like, I'm now making records and have a, a way to get them out into the world and let people find them Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. um and i i i just do things you know i appreciate you even you know giving me the time of day to share this with your crowd Mm -hmm. Uh, of course and i i always appreciate that you know uh, i used to hate interviews and i still do hate interviews but (laughs) (laughs) sorry sorry about that (laughs) no but i mean like I mean, but I, again, this is how my heart has softened in that world is that like, you know, I do appreciate that anybody 
gives me the time of day. Even while, you know, I can sign, two things can be true. You can hate doing interviews, uh, but you can also appreciate the fact that somebody wants to talk yeah, to you right. about and share it with their crowd. Yeah. So I do appreciate that. Don't, don't mix up the two. No, things. no, I, I, it's I, just, I understand. Yeah. You know, but, but in the past it was just hard. I hate interviews, period. You know, <laughs> I understand. No, I appreciate that. You know, so I think like, uh, but yeah, so I, I think it's, you know, the internet has been great in that, you know, people can just kind of, you know, now there's algorithms that hopefully people will find what I'm doing, but you're, you know, there's a limited amount of people that are willing to, you know, I mean, even as we, you know, speak, it's like, it's been a struggle to even get like CBC to engage in with my record and stuff. And that's the CBC. I mean, I used to be tight with the CBC, but mm -hmm. seems not anymore, you know? So, so the internet, so people, people should Google you to find out more about the record. And then, uh, it's all there. It's all I have there. a website, murraylightburn.com. Murraylightburn.com. Go there. Okay. And, and I'll, I'll obviously find everything. I'll link to a bunch of stuff. Uh, so people can yeah, click sure. on it. So, now, uh, if we can go out on a song uh, from this mm -hmm. record uh, that people mm -hmm. can hear, can you possibly choose one for us to to play, Murray, and tell us why why it came to mind? Uh, that's a good. Um, let's see. Let's see. Um, <laughs> and go with more of an album track, but. There's a song on on the album called "Reaching Out for Love," mm -hmm. which is very, you know, one of the things that I was also trying to capture on this record was like my my father did have a playful side. He wasn't always a hard man, you know, with with us, and like he did have a playful side. He did have a side of him that liked to laugh, and yeah. that song is is that is that part of him. Um, yeah, it comes across I, kind of whimsical and playful in its own way. Yeah. And yeah. I just I I when I close my eyes, I just picture his smile and him reaching out and doing something silly. <laughs> you know, I I I just I want even if it's even if I'm just imagining it or I'm just making it up, you know. I just thought it would be there's something about that song that is special to me and okay. um so you can you, you can go with that. All right, no, I appreciate that. This is uh, reaching also, out for it's, love. It's also, it's also very, oh. very tight. <laughs> it is tight. Yeah, it's a tight yeah. performance. This is uh, reaching out for love from the excellent new album "Once Upon a Time in Montreal" by Murray A. Lightburn. Murray, this was a real pleasure for me. I hope you enjoyed yourself, despite it being an interview. And I hope we talk <laughs> soon. Best of luck in the future. Thanks, my man. Tragedies 
out relationships And the spiteful words about to fall Off your lips I will atone My heart's not made of If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Very nice to have uh, Marie Lightburn on the show for the first time ever, actually, I realized. Uh, had his wife Natalia on once to talk about the Deers. Rob Benby, a former member of the Deers, has been on a couple of times. 
not really deer specific conversations, but that is as deer's adjacent as I've gotten. So yeah, thanks to Murray for being on this, the 758th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you can't find an episode that you're looking for, or if you want to learn more about me, sign up for my monthly newsletter. Please visit vishkana.com. You can like Creative Control on Facebook or follow the show on Twitter at Vish Creative, or you can follow me directly on Twitter and on Instagram at Vishkana. I'm on some of the other things now too, but not using them so much. Not sure what's going on in social media land, and I'm I was almost done anyway. Anyway, <laughs> you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter there at Vishkana if you like. Please visit Patreon.com/slash Creative Control. And if you can afford to do so, please make a flexible monthly donation to keep this podcast going. That is the primary source of revenue for all the work that goes into uh, making this show that is otherwise given to the world for free. Now, $6 or more American a month grants you access to exclusive content. You get episodes like this one earlier than everybody else. Uh, Sometimes I dig into my archives and present older stuff there uh, that I think you might find interesting. Most recently, I guess... Uh, in conjunction with the new interview I did with Ira Kaplan from Yola Tango, I uh, dug up uh, an older interview I did with James McNew of Yola Tango, and I presented that on the Patreon. So you're having a Yola Tango fix. That's what I, you know, here's the thing. That's what I try to do. If I have something from my past that might be relevant to the present, I try to find it. But sometimes it's just random stuff. Anyway, those are some gifts. Also, if you want a Creative Control t-shirt, just message me on Patreon, and I will get you one while supplies last again patreon.com slash creative control thanks for your support if you can afford to give me some what else did i want to say oh thanks to pizza trocadero the bookshelf and planet bean coffee in guelph ontario and granddad's donuts in hamilton ontario for their in-kind support for this show thanks as always to my friend jim guthrie for lending me some music of his for this podcast you can learn more about jim at jimguthrie.org And finally, thank you for listening to this episode with Murray Lightburn. I hope you'll check out his new album, Once Upon a Time in Montreal, when it's out on on March 31st. And I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast or follow it and tell your friends all about it and spread the word about creative control. Uh, That is meaningful to me, and I appreciate it. All right, I hope you're doing very well, and I will talk to you very soon. Okay, bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.